Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be made by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding that promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand.
May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, let's just pause and pray for a moment. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for uh, Scripture and for the power and authority and, and amazing relevance of Scripture. I pray this morning as we look at this passage that you would bring to life for us by your Holy Spirit the things that you want us to see uh, individually and I think as a congregation too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was listening to Elizabeth read, it occurred to me that this teaching time could be all about circumcision. Did anybody notice how often that word came up? Some of you are looking a little terrified right now. It's not going to be, at least for today, we're not going to be talking about that. Um, there's a, a phrase that keeps coming up and showed up last week as well as Bruce was um, working on Romans 3, and that is the question, how good is good enough? It seems like the book of Romans, uh, a, a big part of the emphasis of the book of Romans is to try to deal with that question, how good is good enough? So I want to maybe make a few observations about this that might be helpful for us. So first, uh, good deeds are good. That seems a little redundant, uh, but I think it's important to say good deeds are good, but they're not good enough. They're good, but they're not good enough. Verse 2 in our passage says this, If his, so Abraham's, good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that is not God's way. Good deeds are good, but not good enough. So, um, this is a double negative, but the passage is not saying that good deeds are not important. Not saying that. Um, And just to help us out, looking at another letter that the same writer, the Apostle Paul wrote, but to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 2.10, it says this, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things or the good works or the good deeds he planned for us long ago. Good works, good deeds are good. They're just not good enough. I think members of the church in Rome might have been familiar with this verse, this passage from Isaiah 64. It says this, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, our good works, they are nothing but filthy rags. They are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and we fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. So the best good deeds, the best good works that you and I can do, are like dirty cloths in comparison to the holiness, the goodness of God. That's pretty sobering, especially when I think it's tempting to feel like, well, if I'm just good enough, then it'll maybe be okay. That's the first thing. Good deeds are good, not good enough. Second, righteousness for Abraham was because of faith. Uh, That's important because otherwise we might think righteousness is because of something we did. Verses 3 and 5 say this, For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
In verse 5, But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And earlier we discovered that all of us are sinners. We've all sinned. So, I don't know exactly what Abraham's good works were or good deeds were, but I believe that his good deeds, no matter how good they were, were just like ours, as much filthy rags, filthy cloths before the holiness of God. Interestingly, Abraham was around before the time of the giving of the law. So it wasn't like he said, well, I'll just check my Bible and find out what I can do or not do. He couldn't do that. Yet still, it's his faith that's counted as righteousness, not the law, not his deeds. So how did he get this faith? seems like faith was given to him by God. It was a gift given by God. But he still did something to receive it. He wasn't just passive. Somehow, Abraham participated in the gift of faith that God gave him. And that's the, result, that's the reason he was considered righteous. Uh, so the third thing, the faith as the pathway to righteousness is for everyone. Um, that's why there was all that stuff about Jewish procedure, Jewish practice, and how that actually didn't save. It wasn't that that saved, but rather God's promise is based on faith, not meeting the requirements of the law. So you might be wondering, like I did when I was reading this, so what is the law anyway? What is that? So here are a few things that might help. Uh, The root of the Hebrew term used to refer to Jewish law is halakha. (laughs) I think I said that right. Halakha. Not gesundheit after. That's just halakha is actually the word. That was funny. It's supposed to be funny. Um, It means to go or to walk. And halakha then is the way. So the Jew is directed to behave in a certain way in every aspect of life, and that's what halakha tells them to do. The foundation of the law is the Torah, and the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, sometimes referred to as the five books of Moses. We know them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the law, the Torah. The Torah had instructions for Jewish people and instructions for non-Jewish people. So that's part of what the law is. But beginning around four centuries before the time of Christ, we begin to see additions to the Torah. So the Torah wasn't good enough. The Bible wasn't good enough. The um, written scripture wasn't enough. And so what happened is that leaders, lawgivers, scholars, Pharisees started adding what's sometimes known as the oral Torah or the spoken Torah. So this is in addition to what was already there. Probably, this is at least part of what Paul meant when he talked about the law. Because remember, this is a church of Jewish followers of Jesus in Rome who would have known about the law, the halakha, all of these extra rules that have been added. Kind of helps maybe explain a little why there was such resistance to the law. Okay? So that's a little bit about the law. We'll maybe come back to that again later too. Jesus says the law is good. In case we're wondering, Matthew 5 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the law is good. Now then he messes us up a little when he says, If you are angry or hate or even call a brother or sister a fool, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Oh man, you know, here we thought the law is going to be okay. We, can, we know what it is. We can, and then Jesus says, even if you just hate somebody or call somebody a fool, you're actually still in violation of law. He ups the ante. He makes it even a bigger deal. So when Paul and Jesus says that a ra- this radical statement that the law is not able to save, for the Jewish follower of Jesus, that's a really big deal. So, a couple of points of summary. The law always brings bad consequences. Verse 15 says, For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Hmm. And then the promise by faith is not earned. So the law actually can't help us be righteous, and the promise of faith isn't earned. Verse 16 says, The promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. Okay, so heavy stuff in some ways, simple in other ways. The law can't save us. Righteousness is given to us as a gift by faith from God. That's the simple part. The complicated part is, well, what we do. So, so what? Let's go back to the idea of ruts. Since the beginning... Before the church, people have wanted to find ways to either ensure that they are in, or at least ensure that they are better, slightly more in, than others. It's actually a rut. We've, we have actually fallen into that rut sometimes ourselves. Um, so here's an example. We know about the command in Exodus 20 to keep the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. This means that Jews were not supposed to work on Saturdays because that's the context where the Ten Commandments were given. Saturdays were a holy day. Um, Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what work means, and those were followed by many subcategories of what work means. Why? Because it wasn't clear enough to say don't work on the Sabbath. You have to have lots of extra reasons to know whether it's work or not. There are literally thousands of sub-rules to follow. you believe it? I don't know which day you consider to be Sabbath, but wouldn't it be fun if there were thousands of rules about it? (laughs) I grew up with rules about Sabbath. It was Sunday when I was a kid. There were lots of rules, actually. Maybe I won't tell you about them, but some of you probably remember them. Um, So... It seems silly to us when we look at rules that somebody else makes. But I think it's actually easy to fall into the trap. It's called legalism. When I was a child, I grew up in a church where there were many, 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 many rules, many legalisms about how to be a Christian. And these were in addition to the ones in the Bible. For example, going to the pool hall was forbidden. That's where they play pool, not swimming. I don't know, do we have those anymore? I think we still have pool halls. 
That was forbidden. Why? Because it was well known that bad things happen in pool halls. <laughs> so uh, it was a good enough reason to avoid going to the pool hall at all. That was a rule that was added. Nothing in the Bible about that. Other things that were forbidden in my experience, movies, theaters, bowling, dancing, certain kinds of clothes, mostly related to women, unfortunately. Uh, like, remember miniskirts? Okay, maybe they're still around. But yeah, there was a time when I remember they would have a rule that four inches above the knee was acceptable, and past that was right out. <laughs> Didn't matter how tall you were. <laughs> right? uh, and somebody had a ruler. Stuck in their sock, <laughs> that ruler. Uh, seems like a silly rule now, but okay. More rules. Playing cards were bad. Smoking, drinking wine, even having a house larger than a certain number of square feet was bad because it might lead you to greed. These are all real rules that I experienced, and there are many, many more than that. Remember the saying? Some of you might. When I was a kid, I remember this. They used to say, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with the girls who do. (laughs) And then you're going to be okay. Rules. We tend to see our own legalisms as quite sensible, but other people's legalisms as silly. If you didn't think that was true, here's another example from my, not even my childhood, this is my youth, this is during college, but I had a friend who was from the southern U.S., southeastern U.S., um, where they grow lots of tobacco. And in her Reformed church tradition, it was considered completely inappropriate for men and women to swim together, to go to the beach together. Not the pool hall, but the other kind of pool. Men and women, not acceptable to do that at the same time, because who knows what could happen, right? But after church, to go out and light up a stogie outside would have been totally fine. In my tradition, swimming was fine. I grew up in Kelowna in the Okanagan where we kind of had a beach culture that was fine. But if you smoked, that was terrible, right? So there's two different legalisms that maybe, depending on which side you are, you might say, well, one of them is silly and one of them is really good and important. Um, that's because our, we tend to see other people's legalisms as silly. Um, one more. This is, this is pretty funny and pretty recent, but uh, I was a high school student at Cairnport High School in southern Saskatchewan in 1972. Previous century, in case you didn't remember, that's the 20th century, earlier than... Anyway, um, in those days, uh, there were many rules, but one of them was that playing cards were bad. So being a rebel... <laughs> I took a set of playing cards. Those are the ones with the king, queen, and jack on them, right? I took a set of playing cards, and I taped them onto a poster board and put it up on the wall in my dorm room. Big rebel, eh? (laughs) Yeah, I got in really big trouble. Like, as much as if I would have smoked or gone to a movie. It was amazing. It was pretty good, actually. I was was hoping, and yep, it worked. Um, Because playing cards are a gateway problem, right? They lead to other things. Uh, Many years later, oh, by the way, at that time also, they used to do these amazing Halloween celebrations, haunted houses. The student council would put on these, they'd rent, like get an old farmhouse out in the prairie and do a haunted house complete with goblins and witches and you name it. And that was fun in those days. But playing cards were terrible. So fast forward about 25 years and Halloween actually was forbidden. You couldn't even carve a jack-o'-lantern and put it on your porch. But they had poker nights all around the community. (laughs) 
Again, people's legalism sometimes seems silly when they're not ours. One way to look at this is to draw a box. And so there's a box on the screen. Let's call the box the abundant life. And I'm sorry that it's the shape of a box. That doesn't seem right, but let's just live with that for a second. So in the abundant life, um, all of these things are permissible according to Scripture. Everything in the box is, is okay. And so you might point there where the yellow arrow is pointing and says, that's okay. What are some of the things in that category, in the abundant life? Um, sex within marriage. It's good. Playing pool. Drinking wine. Jesus did it. Bowling. Playing cards. Many other good things. <laughs> I implied that some of the other things that I said earlier maybe weren't so terrible. There are some actions that are prohibited in the Bible. So if we look at the next slide, we see um, that there are some that are outside. So things like sexual impurity or distortion or murder or drunkenness or disobeying parents or malice or gossip or violating the Sabbath or many other things. They're outside of the abundant life if we read Scripture. And I suppose there's even debate on that, but those are ones that I thought were pretty safe. We know that Jesus taught that the law is good, so we can also be confident that this abundant life is good, that what is in the abundant life is good. But the problem with an approach that focuses on what is allowable and what is prohibited is it tends to focus on the lines. So in this picture, uh, my, there it is. Can you see it? This is okay, this is not. When we have conversations about the lines, we tend to focus there, and we tend to start asking questions like, how far can I go and still be okay? Has anybody ever heard that question? I've heard it lots of times. Has anyone ever felt that question in yourself? But how far can I go and still be okay? It's a pretty common problem with lines. A focus on the lines is not faith. It's actually the law. Focus on the lines is is basically saying, if I can just do the right amount of good deeds and avoid the bad deeds, then things are going to be okay. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's actually not a good focus. The temptation has always been to add to what Scripture teaches. I think this might be from good motives, but is always misguided, especially when it means we add rules or regulations or guidelines and we enforce them on everybody else. For example, if a person is afraid of violating the biblical teaching about drunkenness, that that's not good, they might be tempted just to make a rule that drinking anything with alcohol in it is forbidden. Sounds safe, right? I mean, that is a way to avoid that problem. Uh, Or if gambling is considered to be outside the lines, make rules about playing cards because they seem to be a gateway to gambling. Another sensible rule. Ironically, when playing cards used to be bad, rook cards were okay. Anybody remember rook? Yeah, because rook cards, they took out the jack, queen, and king and put in 11, 12, 13. Good. Playing bad, rook, good. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? It's like making a thousand rules about how to observe the Sabbath. 
It's a way to be safe. Just to make sure you don't go anywhere close to what's bad. Unfortunately, it results in a focus on the lines. How far can I go before I break a rule? And one of the things that happens is we tend to want to get close. We tend to want to get close to the line. It's not faith. So for millennia, for millennia, not just since the time of the beginning of the church, but really for millennia, the way people have responded to sin is to draw special lines inside the abundant life. I call this the superholiness box. Right? So um, you say, well, this is kind of dangerous, so we're just going to make it forbidden, and that way we don't have any tendency to go further into the danger. Just make it right. So that's where all of these rules that I'm talking about came from. They all came from the desire to be more safe. They just became part of tradition, part of expectation. Um, and, and the problem is that we tend to then judge people who go over the lines. When we draw the holiness box, we tend to judge people who go over the lines. We say, well, they must not be believers. When I was a kid, I knew that people who drank or smoked or went to the pool hall or went to movies, none of them were Christians. That was very clear to me as a child. Now, eventually I had to start questioning that and saying, well, is that really how you know if you're in? No, it's actually not how you know if you're in. Um, So that thing I was telling you about the square footage in a house, I lived in a place where it was considered uh, inappropriate to have a house over 1,200 square feet because that was where the sin line was. Then you were greedy after that, showing off. So they made a rule, and the rule was 1,200 square feet at five feet high. And so I actually lived in a house that had a crawl space that was for storage for children to play in that was four foot 11 because it didn't count as part of the 1,200 square feet. Doesn't that sound silly? A friend of mine is part of a church in wine country. That's where they make wine. I won't say where it is, but he was part of a church, and it just was very common for people to uh, enjoy wine in that church. And in fact, he said to me, I think it's required because it's part of our traditions, part of where we live. But one day, one of their musicians who played an electric guitar like that said, wouldn't it be great if I could have a headset mic to use while I'm playing my electric guitar because then I, don't, then I can just move around the stage and I don't have to worry about that microphone. It was very quickly determined that headset microphones are worldly. I believe Garth Brooks had something to do with it. <laughs> or Brittany. Maybe she was part of it then too. I don't know. But isn't that funny? Like, don't you think... Wow, how did that ever happen? That happens all the time. Again, other people's legalisms seem to be silly. So uh, I'm going to suggest to you that a better way, rather than focusing on the lines, rather than focusing on the edges, uh, so I think there's a next slide has arrows, yeah, rather than focusing on those lines, instead, the life of faith that's talked about here in Romans is a life that focuses on the center. And what is in the center? Jesus. A life of faith focuses on the person of Jesus, on being transformed into the person of Jesus. And the arrows then, instead of going to the edges, actually go to the center. What does that do? First of all, it actually makes the edges more difficult. 
For example, in the abundant life is marriage. We would say marriage is good. It was God's plan. It says in the Bible, it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage is good. But there are people who choose, because of their choice to follow Jesus, who choose to not be married. That's a focus on the center instead of a focus on the line. And you can start to go through all of those legalisms that I was telling you about early, all of those rules, and say, wow, I could see how someone could choose that because of a focus on relationship with Jesus. I could see that. Now, to make that a rule for everyone else, that's called living by the law. But to choose to say, I'm actually going to give up this for the sake of my relationship with Jesus, that's really powerful. And I want to suggest to you today that that's the life of faith. That's actually what God calls us to do. Sometimes the lines get blurry. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in a letter to another church, the church in Corinth. First uh, Corinthians 10 said this, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So rather than saying, hey, here's the black and white rule, he actually said, sometimes you have to reconsider, even though you're allowed to do it, even though it's within the box that was up there, even though it's part of the abundant life, sometimes you have to say, I'm not going to do it because it's not profitable, because it doesn't edify. I believe that is the opposite approach to saying, nope, there's a law, there are rules, and we all got to fit with it, and that's it. That's the end of it. A couple of closing comments. Um, how do you get this faith? First of all, you focus on the center. And I guess that's maybe the challenge for me, maybe for us this week. How do we focus on the center? How do we focus on Jesus instead of focusing on the edges? Hebrews 12, 2 says this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who perfects our faith. Focus on the center. Second, humility. To receive the promise of God, we must daily acknowledge that we're not good enough. This positions us with humility before God and before other people. We acknowledge that God is judge. God has the right to judge. God will judge. But this actually positions us not in the place of judge. This positions us in the place of humility. And then third, resist focusing on the lines. Um, It's our rut. It's our rut. Focus on the lines. Helps us feel better about ourselves and helps us judge others. Neither of which are ways of faith. In fact, this passage says that is not God's way. So, question. What are your lines? What are the temptations that you have to say, oh, if I could just do that then I'd be good enough. Then I'd be righteous. Then God would like me. What are they for you? I want to invite you to turn your eyes away from them and turn, instead of toward the lines, to turn your eyes to Jesus. We're going to have a little bit of time to respond to this scripture, uh, but I just want to invite you to think that way this week. And maybe right now you're saying, I don't have any lines. I'm just a pure person of faith. (laughs) That might be a line, I don't know. Uh, I think we all do. I think it's normal, and I think we have to actually combat it. So I want to invite you this week to consider how to focus, to 
Jesus and away from the lines.